You are listening to the Hebein Podcast, where scholarly research into the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East is brought directly to you. Hey everyone, uh, Dr. Josh here. Welcome to the first episode of the Hebein Podcast. Now, you're probably wondering what Hebein means. Uh, no, it's not a new adversary for the 80s hero, He-Man. No, it, it stands for Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near East. So this podcast is going to focus primarily on uh, on topics within the sphere of ancient Mesopotamia and uh, the books and associated history and culture of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So let's get going. Remember what it was like to be in school? Now, different generations may have had uh, rather different experiences in primary or secondary education. Nevertheless, there's there's something about the topic that strikes a chord with many or most of us. You know, what was it like to be in school in the ancient world? So today, I'm going to talk a bit about what it was like to go to school in the ancient Near East. Now, there is a fair amount of evidence that we have for this scribal education that I'm referring to. A great deal of the evidence comes from uh, the early 2nd millennium BCE, which is also known as the Old Babylonian period. Um, so I'm going to focus there, also because it was a part of my dissertation. So, uh, win-win. Now, students learned primarily by copying texts. So a scribe that came into training, uh, they would copy a text over and over again, starting with very basic things and moving up to more advanced. So what we're going to discuss today to kind of lay out a roadmap, first I'm going to introduce you to a literary text from ancient Mesopotamia to give you an idea of how they in the literature pictured um, the process of scribal education. Then we're going to look at some of the basics of what the process was actually like, so moving from the simpler to the complex and what that actually entailed. And then how we know that, both archaeologically and textually, what the curriculum specifically was like. And I put the word curriculum in quotes there, though you can't see it. And then finally, a little bit about why this all matters. So let's get into it. In 1949, uh, Kramer published an article called School Days, a Sumerian composition relating to the education of a scribe. And this is a publication. It's an edition of... Uh, a text that describes the day of, or a couple of days, of uh, a boy, a schoolboy that is in scribal education. So I wanted to give you a bit of a picture from a literary standpoint uh, what scribal education looked like in the ancient world. So starting at the beginning of the text, we'll jump around a little bit. Schoolboy, where did you go from earliest days? I went to school. What did you do in school? I read my tablet ate my lunch, prepared my tablet, wrote it, finished it. Then my prepared lines were prepared for me, and in the afternoon, my hand copies were prepared for me. Upon the school's dismissal, I went home, entered the house, and there my father was sitting. So you can hear already sort of the similarities between what each of us went through in our elementary school days, middle school days, and what this you know, young man went through. He's he's reading his tablet. He's eating his lunch. He's doing his lines. 
uh, line 19, I faced my mother and said to her, give me my lunch. I want to go to school. My mother gave me two rolls and I left her. My mother gave me two rolls. I went to school. In the tablet house, the monitor said to me, why are you late? I was afraid. My heart beat fast. So I can already picture Michael J. Fox here in Back to the Future, you know, coming in and having the principal waiting around the corner, heart beating fast. Uh, there are several instances here of this, uh, this repeated phrase, he caned me. So the person that was in charge of something in the tablet's little fragmentary here he said, why, when I was not here, did you talk? He caned me. Why, when I was not here, did you not keep your head high? He caned me. Why, when I was not here, did you stand up? He caned me. Why, when I was not here, did you go out? He caned me. Why, when I was not here, did you take the something? He caned me. So you can see here, um, the text goes on, we won't go, uh, we won't read through the whole thing. You can find it again. It's a 1949 publication. It is in the JOS, so Journal of American Oriental Society, volume 69, number four. And it's uh, pages 199 to 215, but it's a fascinating text, and I encourage you all to read it. But that's a literary picture of what it was like uh, to go to school. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what period uh, that would have actually been describing. It seems like it's a larger, you know, do, do larger, more institutionalized schoolings like we would picture today, where lots of kids are going to uh, like a state-run school. Uh, is that really what we see in all periods? And of course, I think the answer is no. So what was the process actually like? Now that we've sort of seen a literary uh, depiction from their own texts about what scribal education was like, the day in the life of a scribal student, and the complexities that you know, are associated with that, trying to figure out exactly what that was describing, what period of time, what do we have from the period uh, in the early 2nd millennium BCE, known as the Old Babylonian period, what do we have that we can we can say was the process of scribal education in that period. Well, most of the evidence that we have suggests home-style schools, so not homeschooling in the sense that we would think, but that, um, you know, at the city of Nippur or at Or uh, or at Kish, you know, we, we seem to have similar ideas uh, also up at uh, Sippar. You know, we all, we all seem to, they all seem to provide this, uh, picture give this picture of schools and private homes. Students would come and they'd do their exercises and they'd learn the scribal craft from someone who was, you know, scribe before them. So, what was the process like uh, as far as the curriculum was concerned? Well, very generally speaking, and we'll get into more detail later on. The process began essentially with very simple sign exercises. So, if you uh, remember, what we're dealing with here is cuneiform, and cuneiform is wedge-shaped writing. So taking a stylus, impressing it into clay tablets to form a variety of different wedges, and those signs represent uh, the writing system, aspects of the writing system. So the process begins with simple sign exercises. So the, the student is learning how to hold the stylus, learning how to hold the clay, and is learning how to impress just simple wedges into the clay and learning to do it correctly. It's not as easy as one might think. Um, and so it takes some practice. So these are just simple sign exercises, so a, a variety of signs that one would have to reproduce. 
You also have syllable exercises where the student is writing out after he's learned to write the cuneiform signs, generally speaking. Now he's writing specific um, syllables, and we'll talk about those below in more detail. Then they move on to writing words and then phrases in proverbs and in model contracts, uh, amongst other things. And then finally, um, the the more advanced uh, scribal curriculum is uh, made up of copying out, ultimately from memory, literary compositions. So then the question is, how do we know that? How do we know that this was the layout of the scribal curriculum other than you know simple common sense? You'd want to do things more simply first and more complicated later. Well, we actually have physical evidence for this in the archaeological record. Uh, now, Miguel Seville and Nick Veldhaus, amongst a great many other scholars, determined that there were four different types of cuneiform tablets, four different shapes um, that functioned differently that contained these types of scribal exercises. So we're going to go through them very quickly, and uh, they're very ingeniously called types 1, type 2, type 3, and type 4 tablets. This is one of the things that we do as a seriologist. We come up with really creative and intriguing classification systems. So we'll begin with a type 4 tablet, even though you would think we would start with type 1. Type 4 tablets are round, lentil-shaped tablets. They don't contain an awful lot of writing. What they do have is a teacher's model of writing. So the teacher writes out something in the way that it's supposed to be written. And then you see an untrained hand copying out that information, copying out what the teacher had modeled. And what we see on these types of lentil tablets are simple exercises, you know, like these signs, you know, syllables, again, some of the more, the most, the most elementary uh, exercises. Type 2 tablets have a front and back, and on the front you see two columns. In the left-hand column, you see the teacher's hand, the teacher's uh, model of writing whatever section or extract that uh, the student is, to, is learning how to copy and to memorize. And then on the right-hand side, you see the student having copied it out. What's interesting about it is that right side after the student would copy it, they would take some, you know, maybe some water in their thumb and smooth out and erase what they had written and what that did, and then they'd, they'd copy it out again. And what that did is that right-hand side became thinner and thinner and thinner, and you can actually see that on the tablets that we have. The left-hand side, where the original teacher's hand had written out the um the text to be copied is its normal thickness, and then on the right, it's been worn down, having been erased and recopied. And then on the back, there's a portion that the student had already learned that was written out. And so by you know seeing what was on the front, what was on the back, you could see which text came first and which text came later. So type 4 are the round lentils, and they're sim simple exercises. Type 2 are slightly more complex, and you can tell from the what's on the front and on the back uh, the relative order that these texts would come in. Type 3 tablets are single-column extract tablets, and essentially what they have is um, what they contain is a portion of a longer literary text. So these are more advanced uh, than the type 4 or the type 2 tablets but they contain a long extract of a longer literary text. So something like a hymn to a king. 
would uh, be written out, a longer extract to be written on that type 3 single column tablet. And these would be used by the student as they memorize that composition. They would write out and rewrite and recopy uh, out on these type 3 tablets this section of this longer, a more advanced literary text. And once they had learned those, all of those sections of the longer literary text, they would take a what's called type 1 tablet, which was large, it was multi-columned, uh, as opposed to the type 3, which is just a single column. And it contained either very long sections or entire literary compositions. Long sections of a, of a literary text or the entire composition itself, or sometimes multiple compositions. These were larger tablets. And this was the final form to be copied onto this Type 1 tablet. So just to kind of give a quick recap on this so that it puts it in context, the Type 4 tablet is a you know, the, sort of the beginner tablet. It's round, it's lintel-shaped, and it contains some basic writing exercises. Type 2 is where they start to copy out slightly longer things based on a teacher's model. Type 3 is they've memorized a section of a literary text, and they're copying out that section. And then finally, the Type 1 tablet is where they're typing out the entirety of the composition often uh, onto this larger multi-column tablet. And so we find these in the archaeological record, and that gives us an idea of not only which texts were copied, but often what order they were copied in, and there are other aspects to it. So because we can tell, in many cases, not only what the curriculum was, what, what, what texts were being copied in the content, but also what order they were in, what did the standard, the, the general curriculum, again in quotation marks, look like? Now I want to say at the outset that there is no standardized curriculum that goes over the entirety of Mesopotamia um, during the Old Babylonian period. This is not something that we see. What we do see, however, is a, a general consistency of certain texts that were copied in the various cities where we have evidence of scribal education, and yet, the individual cities, the those that were teaching, were they had the freedom to curtail their particular text to be taught, their curriculum, to meet the needs uh, that were there locally. So, for example, in the city of Or and in the city of Kish, it seems that more Akkadian texts were copied um, than what we see at, say, the major scribal education center of Nippur. But... Let's talk about the general consistency. So what is this elementary phase? What are these basic exercises that were copied out? And what are the more advanced texts that were copied? Let's go through them just a little bit. So in the first or the elementary phase, and again, not all uh, exercises or types of exercises are included here. I'm just going through some of the more common ones. They begin often with sign elements. So we talked about these before, basic wedges and learning how to write the signs, learning how to handle the stylus, and we see lots of these copied out. After this, we have a composition known as syllable alphabet A. There's also a syllable alphabet B, which is shorter. Syllable alphabet A uh, is an exercise where the student is forming commonly used signs in a sequence of normally two or three repetitions. So, for example, there is a sign called the May sign. There's a vertical wedge and then a horizontal wedge put next to it. They copied out the sign May, May. 
Then line two was the sign pop, pop. Then the third line was ah, ah. Then ah, ah, ah. Then coo, coo. Then loo, loo. So you can see there's repetition of these more common syllables, these more common signs that are used in writing cuneiform. So the student would sit there and write out may, may, pop, pop, ah, 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 coo, coo, loo, loo. And this type of repetition, of course, gave them practice with handling the stylus and writing the signs, but they're actually now moving on to writing these more common signs that are used in these more common syllables that are used in Sumerian and Akkadian texts. The third exercise that we see is something called tutati, and you can tell just by the name what it's probably trying to do. So the student writes out syllables that are following the u-a-e pattern, so tutati. And if you think about syllable alphabet A, it's teaching the students to write syllables that are very common by repeating them. Here, what the student is doing is writing out combinations of consonants and vowels that are going to come up very, very frequently by writing them out in this pattern, U-A-E. So, for example, the beginning of tutati goes like this, tu-ta-ti, and then a line, tutati, all together, then nu-na-ni, and then a line that just has nu-na-ni all together, then bu-ba-bi, bu-ba-bi, and so on. So you can see they're writing the signs out, combining a wide variety of consonants with this vowel pattern, u-a-e, to practice writing these different syllables and the signs that represent them. After tutati, we see in the archaeological evidence, we see a wide variety of personal name lists. So these personal names are just what they sound like, people's names, and they're written in Sumerian and Akkadian. It would just be like, you know, uh, us making a list that has Joshua, Megan, Samantha, Brian, Ralph, you know, writing these out because these are very common names, maybe not Ralph, but you know, many common names that were used. These were scribes that were going to write legal and administrative texts, amongst other things. And so being able to write a wide variety of personal names, particularly those that were common, uh, would have been immensely helpful for the scribe in the execution of their duties. After the personal name lists, we see a series called Ora equals Chubulu. This was a long list over many different tablets um, that we see extracts from in these exercise tablets that are essentially vocabulary lists. And they're writing out words for wood, different types of wood or wooden objects, uh, different types of crafts, animals, meat, um, different objects that are in nature, geographical names, different foodstuffs, etc. So these are, these are vocabulary lists, and again, you can understand if writing out personal name lists gave the scribe and training practice for uh, writing out very common names that he's going to see in legal and administrative texts, you can imagine what writing out words and extracts from vocabulary lists would do. So... They've written signs, they've written syllables, they've written personal names, they've learned a wide variety of vocabulary. They move on to metrological texts, so learning to write things like lengths, different lengths, different areas, uh, different volumes, weights, um, capacities, and so on. 
So being able to write out all these things, of course, would be incredibly important if someone's distributing something or if somebody's writing a contract about land or you know, any of these things, being able to deal with lengths and areas and volumes and weights and all these things would be incredibly important. So learning all that terminology was important for the scribe. Next, there was a series called Ea and Aa, and they were meant to have the scribe understand the different phonetic values of a particular cuneiform sign. So, for example, the ka sign, K-A, can represent the word ka, which means mouth. It can also represent zu, zutu, which is the word for tooth. Uh, it can also be giri 17, and so on. So ka can have, it can be pronounced many different ways. The ka sign can be pronounced many different ways. So in order to teach the scribe the different, the different words, the different ways that the, a particular sign could be pronounced and what it could mean, they had a column that had the ka sign and then a column to the left of it that wrote out the pronunciation of that ka sign, how it was supposed to be pronounced in that instance. So the ka sign would have ka-a next to it so that the scribe would know ka is the way that the ka sign is to be pronounced there. However, when the ka sign was supposed to be read zutu, they wrote the ka sign, and then they wrote zu-utu. So zu is how it was to be pronounced. So they're trying to give a pronunciation guide, essentially. So there was sometimes a third column with an Akkadian translation. But nonetheless, this was to these lists were to provide the scribe with the knowledge of all the different ways that a particular cuneiform sign could be pronounced, could be read. And, of course, the, uh, the name of the series, A-A, is the A sign can be pronounced with an E-A. So A-A, which is the first line of that particular series. So after vocabulary, PN lists, metrological texts, and learning these pronunciations of all the different signs, they moved on to mathematical texts, so lists of numbers, multiplication tables, squares, all those types of things, uh, things that I really don't know an awful lot about. Mathematics is not my strong suit. Uh, Eleanor Robeson has written extensively on this, amongst other people, so you can definitely check her out, which, of course, would be very important for a scribe. Uh, moving on from these, you had lists of divine names, which I don't really have to talk an awful lot about. You can understand if you know anything about Mesopotamian uh, mythology uh, or literary texts or incantations or any of the, many of the genres, you will find divine names everywhere. Uh, so being able to write out these divine names to understand them was obviously incredibly important for a scribe. There were also grammatical lists that the scribe copied, learned, learned to copy out. So uh, these grammatical lists would contain verbal paradigms. If any of you have learned a language where you had to write out different lists of verbs. So if you've learned Greek, luo, lues, lue, luamen, luete, luusin, um, those types of paradigms uh, were also copied out by the scribes. And of course, that makes sense. If you're learning to write out the language, you learn to write out what uh, all the different um, verbal forms can look like. They also had grammatical vocabulary. So for example, lists of different adjectives. And again, this is all part of learning to write the language and learning to understand how it goes together 
in written form. You can tell in this phase of the curriculum, this elementary phase, that it's very much focused on the individual parts of speech or the individual nouns. We're not dealing with full phrases or sentences quite yet. And this is where sort of the transition takes place in the curriculum. They start to write out things like proverbs. And proverbs, as you you know, may know, uh, they are often quite pithy, but they do contain full sentences with their grammatical structures. And of course, this would be a good transition from learning individual parts of speech and individual words to you know, moving on to longer sentences, longer literary texts that maybe are you know, definitely are much more complicated. Being able to write out these proverbs, which are sort of self-contained units, they're single sentences, some mostly single sentences, uh, with their accompanying grammar, but they don't move on to multiple lines. They don't move on to you know these extended paragraphs, and so they're good places to learn sort of self-contained uh, sentence structures. So proverbs begin to take on uh, a bit of a transition, as uh, also with letter writing exercises. So writing out basic letters, um, which you know would allow this the scribe to learn that particular format. Of course, there's a standard format for writing a letter that occurs in different periods. You know, different periods have their own style of writing letters, and so you can see that here in the Old Babylonian period as well. Uh, you also uh, had model contracts being copied out, so you know exercises that were so contracts that were of course not necessarily ones that would be put into place or enforced, but these were models that they could learn to copy that had the different, uh, the various constituent parts that they would learn to copy and learn the language, learn the, you know, to, to tie these different lexemes together into longer sentences and longer forms. So after having learned signs, syllables, individual words, uh, writing proper nouns, those sorts of things, they moved into transitional texts like proverbs and letter writing exercises and model contracts in order to uh, build up to writing longer um, grammatical and syntactical structures like sentences and paragraphs. This brings us to the more advanced stage of, of the scribal curriculum, the literary texts. So literary texts were copied out by, by scribal students once they had learned and mastered all the basic parts of speech and learning to write more basic documents, they began to write more complicated things, as you would see in literature. While there was some variation in the literary texts that were copied, there actually was a great deal of uh, commonality between the different cities and what texts, what literary texts were copied out. Um, Steve Tinney, Paul Del Nero, uh, amongst others, have written extensively on this particular uh, part of scribal training. There were two phases that were accomplished in the more advanced scribal education, and it was uh, focused, and they focused, those two phases focused on different uh, literary texts that were to be copied out. So Steve Tinney wrote on what he called the Tetrad, uh, and these are four texts, four literary texts. They're Lipid Ishtar B, Idindagan B, Enlobani A and Nisaba A. And these were texts that were less complicated, uh, grammatically and syntactically speaking, 
uh, but were obviously significantly more complicated than what the student had done before. So the first part of the advanced training for a scribe was to copy out these four literary texts. The second portion consisted of 10 different literary texts. So these 10 texts were known as the Decad. They were written on extensively by Paul Del Nero, and it refers to these 10 literary compositions uh, that were copied in this advanced stage of scribal education. And these 10 literary texts were Shulgi A, Lipid Ishtar A, The Song of the Ho, Inanna B, Enlil A, The Kesh Temple Hymn, Enki's Journey to Nippur, Inanna and Abich, Nungal A, and finally Gilgamesh and Huwawa A. So these advanced literary compositions, the Tetrad, the Decad, they were initially copied out in sections, memorized by the scribal students. It appears often learning more than one composition at a time, but they were copied onto these type three tablets, these single column extract tablets, and they were copied out until they were memorized, and then they would move on to the next section, and then the next section, and then the next section. And once they had memorized the entirety of the composition, they would then move on to uh, writing it all out from memory on a type one tablet. And they did this, of course, to not only tie all of their training together, um, you know, learning all the, this wide variety of vocabulary and grammatical and syntactical structures and, um, you know, writing, writing out all these things from memory, um, this solidified in the advanced stages of their training, uh, their ability to write really at a very advanced level. Um, now, as we mentioned before, different texts, particularly different literary texts, could be used in different cities. It wasn't like there was some overarching um, restrictive structure that was saying here, you know, in every city it all has to look this way because that's not what the evidence um, shows us. But at different cities like Nippur and Sippar and Or and Kish, you know, we had roughly the same curriculum, roughly the same um, grouping of texts that were used, but with uh, definite variation depending on local need. So that's, in a nutshell, how scribal education worked, uh, particularly in the Old Babylonian period of the early 2nd millennium BCE. Now, why does this matter? Um, well, one of the things that we need to remember particularly about Sumerian literature, is that you know, these compositions have survived, they've come down to us primarily from uh, the context of scribal education. So these scribal training centers, these, these you know, houses where scribal education took place, this is where we have found these uh, Sumerian literary texts, m- m- the majority of them. Um, so it's very important to keep that in mind because oftentimes what we want to do when um, we come to the content of a particular literary text, for example, um, you know, when we read through the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, we're thinking about what the story says. What we're often not thinking about is what kind of a tablet was it written on? Where was that tablet found? What was the context of that? And what does that tell us about what's going on uh, in the tablet, what it was used for, those sorts of things. It's very important to remember that uh, what what texts were used, what compositions were copied out in scribal education, and and where that comes from, and how that affects our understanding 
of um, you know Sumerian literature and mythology and these these types of texts that are found in the curriculum. Secondly, seeing how these different cities emphasize different aspects of the curriculum is incredibly important, I think, to understanding from a historical standpoint what's going on. In my dissertation, I talk about how because Nippur was such an elite um, scribal training center, the fact that Akkadian doesn't appear very often in the the curriculum does not mean that they didn't know how to copy Akkadian. Of course they did. Probably what this means is that the scribes were so elite that of course, of course you know how to do Akkadian. You're coming here to learn to do Sumerian, um, and you're learning to, learning to do it at quite an elite level. So, um, but you see it at Or. You see Akkadian exercises even more up at the city of Kish, and I, you know I think this speaks to um, nuances that you can see in day to day life and. Um, you know, scribal practice in these different centers. And finally, just to sort of emphasize this as we close, uh, understanding the archaeological data, understanding the differences between these different tablet types, for example, type 1, type 4, it helps us place these um, literary depictions in their appropriate context. As I mentioned before, archaeologically, we know that these uh, literary texts came from scribal education context. So, you know, knowing that aids us in piecing together both archaeologically and historically what's going on with these tablets. And I think understanding that more broadly um, can help us all together when we we come to the history of the period and trying to understand uh, what day-to-day life was like, what scribal training was like, what scribal practices were like. Understanding this archaeological data will inform us Uh, on tying all of these aspects together, both historically and archaeologically. So that's it. Hopefully this uh, little introduction to scribal education has been useful to you. And we look forward to seeing you next time here on the HeBane Podcast.